Well, we're continuing in our series called Live and Learn, and what we've said is that life, first of all, is a developmental journey. Each of us are supposed to, in this life, become restored to our Creator Christ in a trusting relationship, and then from that, we are enabled to become who God meant us to become and do what He meant us to do. And a Christ-like version of our unique self is meant to emerge as we develop and grow in this life. And God has uh, put into place some learning context or learning methods for us along this developmental journey. And we're looking at six of these in this series. Now, today we come to experimental learning, and, and all of us have had experience in experimental learning. We find ourselves alive and we just try some things and we discover this I like and this I don't like, this brings consequences, this brings results, and each and every one of us right now are probably involved in some sort of a cycle of experimental learning. Uh, a good example of how far we'll go with some of these experiments, check this place out, it's called the Heart Attack Grill, it's a real name in Las Vegas, Heart Attack Grill. And one of their sandwiches is the quadruple bypass burger. Uh, the, the, the place tries to be shocking in their cuisine. Uh, look at this next slide and it'll talk. The Heart Attack Grill is known for its flat liner fries cooked in pure lard, butter fat shakes, no filter cigarettes. Some of you are licking your chops right now. <laughs> He says, we attract, John Basso says, we attract thrill seekers and risk takers, he told the Los Angeles Times, adding that a restaurant, uh, adding that his restaurant is bad for you, but fun. A uh, restaurant that attracts people who don't really take good care of their health. He actually, in the article, he talks about there was a lady that while eating a, a, a double bypass burger, not the quadruple, uh, she collapsed. Uh, now, she recovered. She was Okay. And so uh, her experience of eating the, the double bypass burger, I guess she'll continue to think that was a good experience. It was an experiment. Now, we all are participants in this. We, we're not born with pure and complete infinite knowledge. Uh, we, we don't really know. We're not born in Eden like Adam and Eve, face to face with God physically mature and developed. That's not how we find ourselves at all. So we learn incrementally. We learn by experience. And experience can be one of those powerful, authentic ways of learning. And, and let me just stop for a minute and share what I mean by authentic learning. Um, authentic learning is when you and I have the ability and the time to assess something objectively and we come to some convictions about it. We, we come to some conclusions that I don't really care what anyone else thinks or does. I believe this is worthy, this is good, this is right, this is desirable. And I'm going to yield myself to this. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to practice it based on my own convictions. Not pressure from anyone from the outside. Not societal pressure. It's authentic. This is coming now from the inside of me. This is what I believe to be true and worthy. That's what we mean by authentic learning, and God is always pushing us toward that in this life. He, he doesn't want us to be the product of pressure, and uh, he certainly doesn't want us to be the product of just blind following of the crowd. He wants us to think. He wants us to discern. He wants us to develop. He wants us to become young sons and young daughters that understand their father, their heavenly father, understand his plans, purposes, will, and who embrace it with complete intelligence having thought it through, assessed it with complete trust. 
So experimental learning can be a very powerful way to learn. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to start by just asking a simple question. Why do we learn this way? And to get us really into this, I'm going to take you to a portion of Scripture. Uh, We're going to have to work our way through the passage, and as we do, we'll apply some things. But let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 1. It'll be page 1269, Romans chapter 1, and we're answering this question, why do we learn this way? By experiments. We try things. We, we see what works, what doesn't work, what we like, what we don't like. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 18, and the, first, the third word in this first verse is going to throw you a bit, but don't worry, we'll, we'll kind of unpack that for you. So chapter 1 in Romans, the Apostle Paul, writing to followers of Christ living in Rome, beginning in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God, and that word wrath, that really throws us, we think of God's explosive anger. Before you settle on that conclusion, let's wait a bit. For the wrath of God is revealed. So Paul is saying, whatever the wrath of God is, it was being revealed right then and there, uh, as it is today, from heaven. So let's consider that. Against all ungodliness, that's people that live as though God didn't exist, and unrighteousness, that's people that don't follow the right way, God's way, the designed way, God's designed way, unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. In other words, when I don't live the way God designed me to live, when I don't live the way God says is right, I am a false advertisement. I'm suppressing the truth about God. When I live the way he designed me, the way that is right, I am communicating to other people, influencing them in the right way according to the truth. But if I don't, if, if I insist on experimenting with other ways than the right way, well, well, I'm hiding God's truth. It doesn't get to be exhibited through me so that it can have the appropriate influence over others. Let's pick back up. Because what can be known about God is made plain to them because God has made it plain. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his, what kind of attributes? Invisible. You can't see him. Invisible attributes, characteristics, traits. His eternal power and divine nature have been, what does it say? Two words? Clearly seen. Now, this is, this is sort of a mind bender. Invisible attributes, clearly seen. How can you possibly see clearly God's invisible attributes? Well, the rest of the verse will explain it. So let's kind of backtrack. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through, what does it say? What he has made. Let's pause. Let's digest. God is saying that when we intelligent human beings observe creation with all of its beauty, all its layers of life, all its complexity, all the principles of physics, all the laws of the universe, when we look into the mirror and see ourselves and our beauty and our complexity, he's saying, we know some things. When you see beautiful, orderly, complex things, you know, I know, it takes an intelligent person with purpose and design to make those things. We know that dead matter does not produce living animal life or human life. We know these things. So God is saying that by sheer mental deduction that he has given us the power to use, we can know, we can know 
that a beautiful, intelligent, powerful, personal creator is there. If he were not personal, he would be inferior to us. And if he's the creator, he has to be superior. Um, Let me go on. Verse 21. For although they knew God, so God is kind of saying, you know, there's no such thing as an honest atheist. An atheist is somebody that chooses to live as though God isn't there. It says, although they knew God, God says, they, they knew, they knew I was there, they know I'm there. They did not glorify him as God, didn't give him the position he deserves, or give him thanks. But they became futile, empty, void in their thoughts, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became, what does it say? And we, we have a world today, not all scientists. There are many in the science community that are faithful followers of Christ. And they see no conflict between scientific truth and all that God has revealed about himself and life in Scripture. But many in the scientific community, as an example, that would call themselves wise, they exclude the creator from the equation. In other words, they believe it's more rational to believe that everything came from nothing for no reason than to believe that everything with all of its beauty and complexity came from a personal, intelligent, you know, designing creator. And and God is saying here that that doesn't make sense. They know better than that. He says, instead of being wise, they actually become fools. Verse 23. And they, <clears throat> they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Now, what is this talking about? It's talking about what we call today idolatry. Human beings that are made by Christ and for Christ, Scripture says, made in God's image, we know, we, we are hardwired to be in a relationship with God. We know he's there. It's an intuitive thing. It's written in our spiritual DNA. Therefore, when we reject God as he really is, when we don't like the God that has revealed himself in Scripture, we're still bound up to worship something. And Throughout human history, we find human beings, wherever they're found all over the world, they're worshiping something. It might be a rock, it might be a stone, it might be an animal, it might be a, another human. We've got a, you know, a lot of history where people claim to be gods and goddesses and so forth. And let me just expand this a little bit. You see, the truth is, anything that you or I are orienting our life around, it, it's, it's the center of our orbit. It's ordering our values and the way we think and the way we live. It's ordering our lifestyle. Whatever you and I are receiving our sense of significance or value from, whatever you and I are receiving our sense of security from, whatever you and I are looking to for ultimate satisfaction, that, in fact, is our God. We may not know it. We may not label it. And and therefore, for example, money can be somebody's God without them even knowing it because they're looking for it to get their, their sense of significance, security, satisfaction. A job, career can be somebody's God. Uh, family, friends, anything, a hobby can be somebody's God. So God is saying in these first few verses that once a human being comes to the place where they, they don't want to acknowledge the true God, we are still driven to create God's, get this part, create God's in our chosen image. We want to make tame God's, God's that allow us to do whatever we want to do and feel good about it. And so we make them, you know, it might be animal, it might be, you know, a job, it might be money, whatever it is. But, but we find something that we have to orient our life around, be validated by, but that we're comfortable with. It doesn't make us uncomfortable. Now, from this, 
from this cutting God, the creator, the designer, the way. Pause for a minute. You remember Jesus last night with his disciples, uh, John 14, 6, he's with them. And, of course, he says a lot of things to them that last night, chapter you know, 13 through 17. But one of the things he said to them, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, or no one can even know the Father, essentially, he's saying, except through me. Now, this term, the way, the early Christians, when you read the book of Acts in the New Testament, you will find the early followers of Christ were called followers of the way. And what Jesus was saying when he's saying he's the way, he is the way of everything, the way of God. God's got one way that everything was meant to be approached and used, uh, we have laws of physics that we know have absolutes in them. We, we, we have no choice but that. They have the way. You and I, in your physiology and in your spiritual DNA, you have the way written into you. There's the way that is absolutely right, and there's any other number of ways that are all deficient and therefore absolutely wrong. Um, let me give you just one little example to show you what I'm talking about. Back there on this stage, maybe you can see it. They told me, whatever you do, Randy, don't walk back in the dark again. I did it in the first service. There's a guitar, really cool. There's two really cool-looking electric guitars back there. Now, we've all probably played that game. What could I do with this, you know? So we could play the game, what could I do with this? And so, your electric guitar, what could you do? Well, you could use it as a canoe paddle. You could use it as a baseball bat. You know, you could use it as a doorstop. You could serve meals on it. We could all find ways, experiment with ways to use the guitar. But if we could find the person that was the first person that designed an electric guitar, that person would tell us that no matter what we think, no matter what ways we think are okay, they're not the way. There's only one way that electric guitar was made to be used. Jesus is the way. God reveals the way that everything was meant to function in his word. And when we deviate through experiment from his way, Ultimately, we receive consequences. Now, not immediately. That's where experimental living gets tricky. So when we exclude God from being God, essentially, in our life, the real God, we start experimenting. We start trying things. We, we deviate. We don't have the way. We've rejected the way. We're not sitting at the feet of our creator to learn the way from his word, and that's the only way that we can learn his way is from his word. Then we start experimenting, and now look at what happens. Let's go back to that passage in Romans. Verse 24, here is the first expression of God's wrath. What I was telling you earlier, we think of God's wrath as being his explosive anger. In fact, it's not. Paul was saying it was being revealed from heaven right there. And the way God's wrath expresses itself often is he simply lets me and lets you have our own way. We see this exemplified in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The son comes to his father. He's full of mischief, man. He wants to grab his inheritance quick and fast. He wants to burn it up. And the father says, okay, have your way. You can go. He gives him the money. The kid burns it quick and ends up starving to death, but then comes to his senses. And that's important. That's experiential or experimental learning and returns to his father. But we start to experiment with things, and God, God's wrath, you got to get this, because we've got such false depictions of God today um, and false depictions of his wrath. God's wrath is God just saying, okay, you don't want my way, you don't want my involvement, 
then have your way and you're going to see what your way brings. One of God's purposes in this life is for you and I to experience what a life of not living according to God's way brings. And you know what it's meant to do? We're meant to get such a belly load of what God calls sin. Sin is just self-destructive, socially destructive living. He wants you and I to get such a belly load of it that two things happen. We become immunized to it. We look at it and we say, this is death. This is insanity. This is crazy. You can't tempt me with that ever again because I know what it brings now. Simultaneously, it's meant to elevate our confidence and our trust in our creator Christ because we say you are the way and your way is always the best it's always trustworthy it's always good so here we go look at this cycle three times you'll hear this term God gave them over that's his wrath just lets us have our way verse 24 therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity to dishonor their bodies among themselves they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, the second time God's wrath is expressed by God gave them over. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. It is talking about lesbianism. And likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. This is homosexuality. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, I want to pause for a minute because this is such an inflammatory subject today. And there's tremendous confusion because, frankly, not many people, maybe not you, but not many people really study God's word. They don't really know what the way is because it's here. And so we start experimenting, experimental learning. We just kind of see, well, what, what, what does society say? What's the majority doing? And this subject of lesbianism and homosexuality, it is a hot button today, uh, as is transgenderism. Let me, let me put that in this whole thing, too. But God's word speaks very clearly about it. It, it couldn't be more clear. Uh, it says this is not the way that God intended for mankind to function. This is not God's chosen way for human sexuality. Way back in Deuteronomy, it even talks about that a man should never dress like a woman or a woman shouldn't dress like a man. This whole transgenderism thing. Now, before you get real up in hand about this, you have to make a decision and I have to make a decision. At the end of the day, am I going to trust the voice of society at any given time in human history? Or am I going to trust the voice of God as it's revealed in his word? Now, I know what my decision is, and you're welcome to make your decision. But at least you must know with crystal clarity, this is not the first place or the only place in Scripture that this subject of homosexuality is dealt with. It's dealt with again and again in Scripture, and it's crystal clear every time. Now, here's where this gets problematic. Many of us that identify ourselves as Christians, we puff up with pride, we get arrogant, we get cocky, we get nasty, and we speak about this subject as though it were the only sin in Scripture. You're going to see in a minute, we're going to read a, a laundry list of sins, and your name and my name are in it, believe me. And it even says that the list qualifies us for death. So here's what I'm making a plea. How about 
If God brings into your life or my life a person that is a lesbian or a homosexual or a transgender person, how about they are shocked at how kind we are, how loving we are, how much we care about them, but also that we love them enough to not be cowards. We cannot be cowards any longer, folks, and tell people that something that God says is ultimately hurtful, destructive, deficient for them, not his highest, best, and good. We cannot continue to tell them it's fine, it's good, it's okay. You're being a coward, I'm being a coward if I do that. So what I have to do and what you have to do is find a way to humbly, very humbly, because we're just as in need of God's mercy as anyone else. We need to find a way, though, with gentleness and love and compassion to share God's truth with them in hopes, in hopes that they'll feel safe and give themselves time to uh, open up to see what God has to say about life. We, we, we should be very careful because Christians have been very ugly toward this one particular sin, whereas we kind of gloss over our own. So, just a word of caution on that. Clarity and caution simultaneously. Let's go on. The next cycle starts in verse 28. This is the third expression of God's wrath, where he just lets us go. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, didn't acknowledge him as the way, God gave them over, third time, to a depraved mind. A depraved mind is a mind that's not functioning the way that it should. Um, I'm fearful to take this drift, but bear with me. I I want you to understand a little bit about the way you and I develop. You and I, unlike Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were born with physically mature bodies. Now, mentally and emotionally, they were meant to mature slowly as God continued to meet with them and show them the way about everything. But they had mature physiology, mature cognitive powers, a mature moral uh, reasoning powers, you're, you're not born that way, neither am I. Think about it. When you and I are born, what's the first thing that functions for us? Physiology. You're a baby, I'm a baby, I feel I've got a wet diaper. I don't know what a wet diaper is, I just know that it feels uncomfortable, so I cry. I learn by experimenting that when I cry with a wet diaper, somebody comes, puts a dry diaper on me, and I learn a dry diaper feels better than a wet diaper. So I'm... I'm physically driven and a little bit emotionally driven to get my, my needs met physically. Life goes on, and before long, we, we learn that, gee, it feels, emotions start to develop. It feels better when somebody holds me and hugs me and kisses me on the forehead than if somebody screams at me or throws me in a crib or something. So I start learning emotionally. I learn physically first. My sense, physical senses develop. Then I learn emotionally. feels better to be treated with love and care than to be treated unkindly. But it's not further on. Maybe I'm four, five, six years old. Maybe I'm 10, 11, 12, 13. Now my, my sophisticated uh, emotional, relational understanding starts to develop. And I learn it feels better to be accepted and liked than it feels to be rejected and unliked. But still, my cognitive teenagers, don't be offended if there's any teenagers here, but, but your, your cognitive Abilities are about the size of a pea. You know, they say they're a softball-sized uh, brain. Yours are about the size of a pea. It's not until you get to about 25 that your cognitive abilities really, really get firing up the way they should. Uh, your cognitive abilities, you, get to, you, you can now reason things. You can use your imagination and reasoning and see things and examine them. And your conscience, your moral reasoning faculty has developed. You don't have any of those faculties in your early part. Consequently, you and I grow up 
expecting to have our physical and emotional desires met. And we are driven through life because we are driven by the fear of death. We don't know how long we're going to be alive. We don't know who we are. If we've rejected God as the way, we don't know who we are. We don't know why we're here. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We only know some things bring pleasure, some things bring pain. I want to get as much pleasure as I can, avoid as much pain as I can. And we start experimenting and trying things, mostly on the physical level and the emotional level, And it's only later that the cognitive starts developing. And sometimes we see, wow, maybe some of those early choices were not too good. But you know what we've done? Some of us. Here's the downside of experimental learning. Some of us have opened the Pandora's box early in life. And we're hooked, man. We never expected it. We never thought that thing we were experimenting with, it was so much fun, it was so pleasurable, it was so enjoyable. Initially, we had no idea of the ramifications. We didn't know that long-term it was going to come to haunt us and control us and addict us and drive the direction of our life and, and cause us to ram head-on to consequence after consequence, hurt after hurt. We didn't know. We didn't know, and now we're still sitting here today, some of us. We're trying to keep our game face, but we're still stuck. We're still addicted to whatever it was that happened. Way, 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 way back. That's the down, dangerous side of experimental learning. Now, the good side is, is you, you know now, you know how dangerous some things can be. That when God says something's not the way, there's something behind it. But we get into these experimental cycles and look at this laundry list of what develops. So God gives us over to a mind that that doesn't function the way we were meant to be ruled by our God-enlightened reason and our conscience that has been aligned with the will and law of God. That is not the way we typically function. So consequently, our experiments start, verse 29. They're filled with every kind of unrighteousness. If you don't do it God's way, there's only one option. That's the wrong way. That's the unright way. They're filled with all kinds of wickedness covetousness we're we're dissatisfied we don't know how to satisfy malice we have ill will toward others we kind of like it when something bad happens to certain people they are rife with envy murder strife deceit hostility they are what is that word gossips gossips and the right word right after slanders they always go together you see if you're a gossip you're trying to make yourself feel important and have some control by talking about others getting everybody else's business but then you slander them because you need to put them down, cut them down a notch or two to make yourself feel better. Gossip and slander always go together. And you're going to find something really interesting about these in a minute. So we experiment with gossip and slander. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil. We start using our imaginations to just find new ways. Disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. Although... They fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to, what is the word? Come on, Randy. You mean to tell me gossips ought to be put to death? Can I take a vote on that? (laughs) What is God saying? Randy, that's why the Bible loses credibility, stuff like that. You really think gossip should be put to death right alongside the rest on the list. Let me explain to you the way God is looking at this. God is saying he intended a perfect world for everyone forever. How can there be a perfect world for everyone forever? Everyone has to embrace the way. When God sets up what he says to be the right way or what he calls righteousness, it's not him being arbitrary and saying, oh, I'm just going to make up some rules because I can It's him in love saying, this is the only way life works. 
for everyone to have the best life ever, forever, you can't have any of the things on this list. You can't have even one gossip. In the new world to come, there will be no gossips. There will be no slanders. There will be no haters. All the things we read on that list, they are the result of experimentation. You and I experiment, trying sometimes to cope with their internal sickness that we don't know how to fix. But nevertheless, this is what comes. And so why do we learn this way, this experimental way? Well, often it's a result of either knowingly or unknowingly, excluding God from being God, the way, the truth, the life in our life. And you're going to see in a minute, you can do that and even call yourself Christian. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves, it matters what we really are. Listen to what Paul kind of reiterated these words to a group of followers of Christ living in uh, Ephesus. He said, I'm telling you this. He's saying, you, you want to know why you learn this way? I'm telling you this, I insist on it in the Lord. You shouldn't live your life like the Gentiles. And where Gentiles, it just means the nations. It's those that did not have access to the scriptures in particular. He said, you, you can't follow the majority. You can't follow the crowd. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 7, 13, 14. He said, you know, the masses are on this path that leads to destruction. But there's only a few on a narrow path that leads to life. He said, you can't follow society. You can't follow the trends. If you do, you're going to pay later on. They base their lives on pointless thinking, and they are in the dark. They don't know who they are, why they're here, what's right, what's wrong. They're disconnected from God's life because of their ignorance and their closed hearts. Look where it goes. They are people who lack all sense of what? Right and wrong. If ever there was a day that people lack all sense of right and wrong. Today, more and more and more, good is called evil, and evil is called good. No sense of right and wrong. They've turned themselves over to doing, what does it say, to doing what? Whatever feels good. That's experimenting. That's the rule of today. Hey, whatever you want to do, as long as you're happy, as long as you feel good, it's, it's, it's fine. And practicing every sort of corruption along with greed. This is not being mean. This is not being legalistic. This is not being religious. This is being rational and sane. There is a way built into each of us. Listen, I have no choice. Do you? I have no choice that I have to breathe air continuously. It's an absolute. I've got to breathe air continually. I have no choice. I've got to have water every three to four days. I have no choice. I, if I want to live underwater like a fish, I can't. I have no choice. I was born one that can't do that. If I want to fly like a bird, by pure wing power, I can't. I have no choice. I did not choose my eye color to be brown. I didn't choose my height. Lord knows I didn't choose my height. <laughs> There's a lot of absolutes. But then we say, when it comes to the way we live, whatever you feel like, whatever makes you feel good, and if you dare say that there's a way only one way, the way the Creator in love designed us to function, get ready. Get ready to probably be pretty unpopular in some circles. Listen to this verse, one last one from the book of Proverbs. It says, all a person's ways seem right, where? In his own opinion. Philip Yancey, a great Christian writer, uh, Three decades now he's been writing great Christian books. He, he tells a story of a friend named Susan. Uh, Susan would call herself a Christian. She would identify with herself as, as a Christian. And Susan came to Philip Yancey, and she started explaining to him that, that, that things weren't 
clicking the way she wanted him to with her and her husband, particularly in intimacy issues. And so she was trying out some other men and fully intending to divorce her husband and find a man that she was more pleased with. So Philip Yancey listened to her, and then she added to her talk that she spent an hour. She got up early, an, you know, very early in the morning and spent one hour every morning with the father. And so Philip Yancey delicately and tactfully tried to probe that a little bit. He says, well, you know, when you're spending your time, that hour with the father, does the father ever uh, communicate to you about this, this thing you're doing with your husband and what you're about to do and what you're doing with other men? And here's her exact words. Susan bristled. That sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The father and I are into relationship, not, what's the word? Morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside me, not judging. Now, I tell you, she might be getting up early every morning, but I don't know whose father she's talking to. It's not that father. I can tell you that. Because he would take that conscience that's a part of his image in us and sensitize it and make it uncomfortable to warn. How many of you have ever had you driving your car and all of a sudden the red lights come on inside your car? The oil light maybe. How many of you have ever had that happen? I killed the car by ignoring that one time. I really did. The motor seized up. When God activates that conscience, in most cases when it's based on his word, He's saying, warning, warning, don't, don't go there. It's love. It's not restriction. So here's C.S. Lewis's take on what people like Susan, I hope not me or you, the kind of God we would want. C.S. Lewis says, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said, anything we happen to like doing, uh, what does it matter as long as they are contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. You see, we're God makers. If we reject the true God, like we read in those early verses in Romans, we start going into the God-making business and we make tame gods. We make gods that will allow people like Susan to commit adultery and feel good about her relationship with God. It's extraordinarily important that we meet with the real God in his real word. Now, let me share a phrase with you that I think gets to the heart of this. Experimental learning can be costly Many of you know it by experience, as do I, but effective. Uh, many of my young adult friends that I grew up with died as in those young adult years. Uh, we were all experimenting. We were all trying different things. I don't know why I didn't die, and they did. It would have just as easily been me. But many of them, their experiments cost their lives when they were in their early 20s. Some of us have experimented with things, as I mentioned briefly earlier, that have scarred us to this day, that have confused us to this day, that have set the course of our life in a direction that is very tumultuous to this day. 
Some of us find ourselves fighting, battling with feelings of shame and guilt and fear every day of our lives because of some experiments we made early. We opened that Pandora's box and we can't shake the effect of it. We didn't mean anything. We just were experimenting. We didn't know the way then. But we found out now what it's like when you resist or reject the way and we're still paying the consequences. So, you see, this is a costly way. It's a costly way of learning, but it can be effective. I mentioned that prodigal son earlier. You see, some of us in here, we have come to the place where we say, I don't really care what anybody else thinks about certain things. I have personal convictions now. I've learned the hard way. I've learned by experience. God's way works. My way brought all kinds of consequences, some of which I am still trying to live through Still trying to shake the pain of. And and so now we have convictions. We've really learned something. We have kind of become immunized to that form of unrighteousness because we know, we know now that God's word is just a loving description of the way to have the best life ever if it's followed. We know it by experience. You ever meet some people that uh, they're always acting as though there's some vast conspiracy uh, that's causing all the problems in their life. I, I mean, they don't really say it like that, but, but they act like it's a bit of a mystery that, you know, bad things just keep happening to me. I just, you know, I get two steps forward and three steps back, and I can't ever get my head. And yet you observe them, and you know they're bringing this on themselves. You know it. It's the way they talk. It's the way they, they work or don't work. It's, it's a million things, and you can see it. A blind man could see it. But they act like it's some mystery, some mysterious conspiracy. Listen to this verse that describes that process, Proverbs 4.19. It says, the way of the wicked is like gloomy darkness. They do not know what, what does it say, what causes them to stumble. They really don't. They think it's some vast, mysterious conspiracy. There's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way that leads to death. Now, let me tell you something terrible about me and terrible about you. Uh, you and I have a horrible propensity to deceive ourselves and a horrible propensity to accept abnormality and adjust to it rather than say, this is, this is wrong. This is insufficient. This, this should not be. Came across this article and actually saw this a while back about this couple named uh, Kristen and Steve, or, or Catherine and Steve. And they live in the, the flood tunnels in Las Vegas. Uh, picture. Don't they look happy? Uh, they live in these flood tunnels with about 700 other people. The tunnels are underground in Las Vegas. And they're called flood tunnels because when they do get rain there... These tunnels take the water and they fill up and flood. Everybody has to keep their stuff up if they possibly can. In the past two decades, 20 people have been drowned by living in these tunnels. Also in these tunnels, um, their, their co-inhabitants are black widow spiders and lots of mosquitoes. So they go to sleep every night. Maybe you get bit by a black widow you know, spider. Maybe you get bit by a bunch of mosquitoes. And maybe... You wake up to a flood and you drown. And it's underground. It's in the dark. But they say here's some advantages. The advantages are 
It's a lot cooler down there than it is up on the surface, you know, if you're living out in the parks and things like that. And the cops don't bother you down there underground. 700 people in the community. you got a community. You're not alone. And this just struck me as this horrible propensity that I have and you have to accept what should be unacceptable and to adjust to it and call it normal. And so... When we ask the question, you know, why do we learn this way and and what do we learn this way? You and I have to put a caution, uh, a big big caution in front of our eyes that that I am capable of rationalizing and legitimizing a lifestyle, certain habits that are, are not God's best. And I can even look around and say, gee, everybody is doing it, so why am I so different? Why, why is it not okay? Listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. It says, O eternal one, I know our lives are in, excuse me, I know our lives are in your hands. And then the key phrase, it is not in us to direct our own steps. We need you. Now, how many of you have learned that by experience, by your own experiments, that I'm not sufficient to direct my own life? If it weren't for God's word, I'm telling you, I'd be either behind bars or dead. There's no doubt, no doubt in my mind. I am not sufficient today. I need God's word to direct me. This is the way, Randy. That is not the way. And I've learned experientially now over 43 years that his word is trustworthy. It's the word of a loving father. And so... In my experimental learning, what if I now start a new chapter of experimental learning and it's going to be a new chapter where I experiment wholeheartedly, 100%, every area of my life, every part, to do things God's way. I'm going to go to his word and I'm going to absolutely do whatever he tells me in his word to do. And when he says something should be stopped, I am absolutely, no matter how much confusion it's going to bring in my life, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to take some new experiments in righteousness and living according to the way. If we do this, we will not regret it. We will learn by experience that God is good, that his way is best and trustworthy. But if we don't, we have a danger. And it's a danger that we'll go happily, foolishly, gradually toward destruction. Let me close with a, a story. Uh, I'm just curious, how many of you ever saw the movie called Temple Grandin? It's a very unusual title. The movie's called Temple Grandin. If you haven't seen it, I'm telling you, please, please, please see the movie. I, I, at first, I remember we turned it on, I thought, oh, man, this is like one of these girly movies. But, but I, it was not. It was not. It's, it's amazing. Claire Dane started in it. It was made in 2010. If I get back, back again, uh, she's more interesting than me. Uh, this is the real Temple Grandin, and she's a livestock behavior expert. She is autistic. This is what makes it an extraordinary story. You, you just got to see the movie. You just got to. Um, anyway... She learns from her own autistic experiences that that certain things calm and narrow her focus, one of which was she created this kind of what we would call a squeeze shoot. It was like a device that made her feel hugged, and it calmed her down and focused her mind. So she started applying these principles to the the cattle business. You you know, some of you, I I don't know, this is going to be a shock to you, but they kill cattle. Yes, they kill 
You know, I, I grew up in the city. I lived in Washington, D.C. from 1950 to 1980. I, I thought, you know, meat, hamburger, steak, chicken— it just grew inside of cellophane. I didn't know they were killing animals. They kill animals. Yeah. And so she designed these humane ways to harvest. Isn't that a clean word? To harvest these animals. Um, one of the things she found is that you need to not, you've you got to avoid alarming them, shocking them. You don't change their direction in any sharp ways. You need to keep them calm because if they're scared, particularly just before they go to slaughter, slaughter, no harvest, before they're harvested, they let off a hormone that makes the meat not so good. So she developed these pens where they, they just gradually meander very slowly around, and it makes them feel like a typical walk at the end of the day home. And they're calm and collected through the whole thing. There's no cattle prodding. There's no yelling. There's nothing to alarm them. And they don't even know it when their little feet are suddenly lifted off the ground by this conveyor belt. She calls it the stairway to heaven because it's lifting them up, and they don't even know it until right between the eyes. And they go to heaven. <laughs> and they go to your plate. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Every vegetarian in here now is thinking, yes, you meat eaters, you're a bunch of disgusting savages. <laughs> yes, we are. Guilty as charged. <laughs> so what's the deal? What are you talking about, Randy? Um, here again, I'm just telling you what I know about me. I can be lulled to sleep. I, I can be moved gradually down a comfortable path. Feels like it's working. Feels easy. Feels okay. It's familiar. Doesn't require change. Doesn't alarm me or alert me. And so I'm, I'm capable of gradually going down foolishly, happily, confidently while the years are just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, a path that's leading to destruction. What do you mean destruction, Randy? We're all going to die. I mean that the purpose of my existence, I, I was put here, you were put here to become a beautiful, a stunningly beautiful human being, one that looks just like Jesus Christ, has his love, his compassion, his self-control, his morality. That's the purpose of life. It is not to just experience all the pleasure we can. That comes in the world to come where it's righteous kinds of pleasure. And it's for everyone and nobody's deprived. But this life, you've got to nail it. Your purpose, if you miss your purpose. If I miss my purpose, we've, we've gone stupidly, laughingly, like cattle, to destruction. And so with all of our experimental learning... Let's make sure we're going to now be bold, brave, brave experimenters in righteousness. Righteousness is living the way God designed us to live, which brings the best life ever for us and for all those that are around us. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually become a follower of the way. That's Jesus Christ. He has proven his trustworthiness by creating the universe, revealing his character comprehensively, showing us exactly what God's like, particularly when he sacrificed himself on the cross, saying, your sins matter so much that I will suffer for them to let you know you can trust me. They are forgivable. I want you. You were made by me and for me. And all we have to do is come to him in trust. 
And maybe today you're going to leave experiments of unrighteousness and you're going to put your faith and your trust in Christ and become a follower of the way, the truth, and the life. Others of us, we're already followers of Christ. We're already followers of the way. But you know, and God knows, that there are some experiments still going on that are not His way. And they're eating at you, and they're pulling you down, and they're holding you back, and they're stealing your joy, and they're stopping you from becoming this beautiful, wonderful, contributing human being, contagiously wonderful human being that God intends, fully intends for all of us to be. But you've got to be brave in experimenting in righteousness God's way. Christ's revelation should make us brave to be experimenters in righteousness. Will you leave here today really a new person that's going to be brave and bold in your experiments in God's way, the right way? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask for the sake of revelation you've given to us of yourself in your Son, the Lord Jesus, for the sake of that, that we will become brave experimenters in righteousness. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.